Hello again. Welcome back to Pottywood Interviews. Has it been a week already? No, it's probably been a week and a half. That's how strenuous our edits are. Uh, but welcome back to the show. Of course, I am Andrew Roger Carson, co-host, and with me this week, returning yet again, Joe Parker. How are you, Joe? I'm very good, thank you. I feel like it's been a year since we last spoke. There's been that much going on in between, but all good. We're vibing. We are, and... Uh, We've had some really good feedback uh, in regards to recent episodes we've had out, including uh, the first part of our guest who is returning for the second half of his career. So nice we did it twice. We just couldn't get enough, honestly. Back it, to the studio, we've got is. Mike Pisa. Hello, Mike. Thank you for having me back. Thank you very much. With the last episode that we had you on, Mike, uh, we had just finished talking about your time. Uh, Warner Brothers working on Looney Tunes Back in Action. Mm-hmm. Uh so we're going to jump ahead to, I believe it was around 2009, 2010, uh, which was a fair few years later. You started working on what I think is a definite cult classic, Dante's Inferno, an animated epic, um, which was, I guess, a kind of animated tie-in for the uh, Xbox game that was coming out around the same time. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, at the time, uh, I, I'm trying to remember the name of the little sub-company they had doing it. It was an internal division of uh, EA, um, had produced uh, several games, uh, Dante's Inferno, um, uh, Dead Space, several others. And they were trying to brand them off as a separate thing. And they thought that they could, you know, leverage the IP into right. uh, televisions and movies and, and options, which was all a very, very good idea. Uh, of mm-hmm. course, it was all run by people who, you know, only knew video games. So, of course, what happened is, you know, people destroyed that. What was a very good idea. And I can, I can get in more to the, how that business model, which made perfect sense on paper, yeah. was annihilated by the people doing it, which is usually what happens. You know, you look at Rings of Power and you're like, how in the name of God <laughs> did such an atrocity force its way screaming into the light, you know? And the answer <laughs> is like, it made sense on paper. And then they hired the wrong people. Well, I was working on that Warner's project uh, hmm. that we all knew was going to fail. Um, <laughs> as we were working on it, and um, but I met a really great animator, Jeff Sergey, has become a lifelong friend of mine. He was also a, a guy who came out here from Chicago, brilliant Warner's animator for years. You can look him up; amazing career. Mm. And but I, I, um, I was it's somewhere. I think I was either back at Disney or uh, somewhere like you know solid you know feature. Yes, and you know he said you want to come, you want to leave that security and come do this crazy stupid thing. Uh, IDT bought film Roman and put and started to put together the not the worst animated film I've ever seen but in in the small box of horrible animated films I carry around with me just to scare off ghosts and demons Hmm? (laughs) (laughs) and it was called everybody's hero and it was just a piece of crap from top to bottom derivative corporate let's let's have you know baseball and kids and we're gonna make a hit you know all this crap you know I used to hear um, what's his face spiel over at DreamWorks, and um, it was you know I I got pulled into that to try to help the storyboarding team, and they went through like a half dozen directors, and finally the the writers they brought in to rewrite it the fifth time it didn't work, you know, got to be directors, which is like always a great idea. I, I refer you back to Rings of Power. Anyways, the um, <laughs> this will pay off. And um, so we'd help out with the boards a little bit here or there and bounce around. And while we were doing this, IDT ran out of money and wanted to sell well. For this division, I don't know. I don't know if they really ran out of money for themselves. I don't think so. 
but um, for this division and wanted to sell it because nobody sells something that isn't a garbage fire. If it's anything short of a cratering disaster, it doesn't get sold in Hollywood. And when Disney starts selling divisions, remember that. And at this time, uh, Harvey Weinstein and his brother had just left Miramax, which had been bought by Disney, if you'll recall. <laughs> and they'd basically been thrown out because they couldn't get anything done and they were spending too much money. And, you know, they were just pulling the same crap they did, you know, in New York, but they were doing it, you know, on a budget with people watching and, you know, they, they ended up leaving. Um, but they'd gone to Goldman Sachs and gotten like a half billion dollar startup fund, which at the time was unbelievable. It was incredible, you know, because yeah. it takes popular opinion a long time to catch up with like professional opinion. You know, professionals yeah. can figure out somebody's full of crap many years before the newspapers start saying things like he's full of crap. Um, so uh, he had, and so like, you know, he was talking like he was going to buy IDT and IDT came in. They wanted him to invest in pitch. And so they did this big presentation of all these projects to him that were just, you know, exactly the kind of crap, to be honest, Disney and DreamWorks were developing at the time too. Uh, anyways, Harvey walked in and he hated all of it. And somehow somebody saw, showed him a little bit of Rob Zombie's Il Superbisto. And, you know, the people in charge didn't want him to see that because they, that, they had nothing to do with that. They were, that was beneath them. It right. hadn't come out yet. And, uh, you know, it had nudity and sex and you know, cursing and stuff. All and uh, he was like, where the hell did this come from? Like, oh, that's not us. You know, but, you know, everything, you know, look over here at this shiny thing we want you to buy. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who did this? And they said, well, this guy Mike and Jeff did it. And so, like, you know, he walks in, you know, he walks into our room. And, you know, Jeff and I are working on something. And he, he says, who directed that? And Jeff points at me. Because I could have pointed it in more like Rob Zombie directed it, technically, you know. <laughs> Almost like gulping, like, what's he going to say now? It was like, you know, like that. And we didn't know who he was when he walked in the door. You know, I mean, believe it or not, there are a lot of overweight people in Hollywood and they tend to walk into your offices, usually looking for pizza. But anyways, he walked in and, um, you know, pointed at me and said, you know, let's let's have lunch. And the next thing you know, um, I'm being asked to take over the Hoodwinks franchise because the guys who originally did it with him, there had been conflict and a blow up and apparently the first budget had come in like eight times over budget and i was like when they told me that i was like oh my god the film was 80 800 over budget Jeez. well it was budgeted at something like five hundred thousand dollars and it came in like four million and i was like well that's actually still pretty good you know i think i think the person who budgeted at first is the crazy person here but anyways <laughs> it was a whole thing he wanted to do he wanted to do more stuff and uh, um he had a script and all that so I ended up working for Harvey and I can talk about that some other time. But after it got done, I fell into the same thing working with Harvey Weinstein that many, many, many people did. Most of the uh, directors and producers who worked with Harvey fell into this situation. He didn't have any money. He was always bullshitting about his money. He had a couple of things that he thought could make money. It was always, you know, in hock up to him. He used to tell me all this. He used to brag about how you know, he, he didn't have to ever worry about paying back his bills because he owed, he owed Goldman Sachs so much money that all he had to do was go bankrupt. And, he, you know, they wouldn't want to report that in any single quarter. So they kept giving him more money to keep him from going bankrupt because they didn't want to admit that the first loan had been such an idiotic thing to do. And so he was he knew that and he would love it. He said, I'll just I'll just go back and get more money out of him. I don't give a They're the ones who are going to get through it. I'll just I'll just go bankrupt and start another company. I'm going to make some notes so then I know what to do. So oh, yeah. That's how rich people always want you. Yeah, it's true. Oh, yeah. Um, investment banks are like going around now buying up like apartment buildings and office blocks that are like massively de devalued because they expect them to crash and they expect the government to bail them out. Well, that, that was that was, this, you know, that was Harvey's business model. Yeah. 
So he did that to us too. He didn't have any money. He didn't have enough money to release it. He couldn't buy the theaters to release it when we were supposed to release it. Um, and he kept coming up with all these reasons. And you know, you've all always heard about Harvey's always recutting films and stuff like that. Harvey didn't have the attention span to recut a film for creative reasons. Harvey <laughs> was just stalling when he ran out of money to release the film and he needed to like, you know, not trigger force majeure so that the original owners of the film could get it back. Did it ever frustrate yourselves or people that worked with him because of like, it would kind of, hold back all of your work in a sense or is it a case of did money it ever frustrate yeah or is it a case of like money still walked around paid? with a bodyguard because producers and directors were constantly trying to kill wow well kill is <laughs> probably too strong a word but like no he was he was Accidental destroying money. people's lives i mean let's be serious about this you know somebody puts together a film i mean andrew you can relate to this yeah. you mortgage your house to put together a film mm -hmm. you get it done miracle of miracles you take it to something like you know con or you know a, a american film market and you're, 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 you've got offers for it. And in walks Harvey Weinstein and his team of bullshit artists. And they talk you, they convince you with promises and contracts that they're going to do all these amazing things for you and start your career. And you're going to have, uh, he always had other films that you're going to work on too. And then it sits unreleased. So he can take a loss on it and take the resources that he promised into this and put in something else. Imagine what that does to your life, to your family. Imagine the divorces, the children who didn't go to college. Imagine the harm this guy did, you know? And everybody talks about me too, but yeah. this guy's harm wasn't, you know, limited to the fact that he was, you know, an, another middle-aged, you know, guy, you know, convincing actresses to sleep with him. That, mm. that was horrible, but, you know, he did a lot of other horrible stuff too, business-wise. He destroyed Good. lives. Uh, I have spoken with uh, friends, directors, and that that I have met in... Uh in LA over the last 10 years. And the stories around Harvey are always kind of the same centered around that. You know, that their films, basically that they went and shot them and either they were butchered on release or they weren't released at all. I mean, he, he ruins career, he ruined lives. He yeah. was like, you know, the not tough version of, of your typical Chicago mobster. But anyways, <laughs> um, we're sitting there and I've got nothing to do. I've got literally nothing to do. So I call up, you know, Tom and Joe, who are the last guys I'd worked with. And I'm like, I've got, I'm waiting for my film to release. And they tell me it's going to release next week, but I haven't seen anything in the paper. So maybe it will, maybe it won't, you know, the McDonald's, the toy deals. We had toys in Burger King. Yeah. He never told the toy, he never told the restaurant or the toy company. He was, he was not going to make the release date. And he just had the toys released in Burger King with no movie to associate it with. So like that's, that's how shitty the Weinsteins were at basic stuff. Jesus. Anyways, um, I did have, I have a box of the toys because I went to Burger King and said, you know those toys that you don't know what they're for? Could I have those? And they handed me a box of the toys. <laughs> <laughs> they're all looking like, these are the weirdest looking these are really cool toys. toys, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, don't ask questions. And um, I'm walking down the hall and Joe Goyette, who I haven't seen in weeks, comes running out of a conference room and look, looks around and looks at me and goes, Mike, Mike, I need you to interview for, for, for a film. I'm like, what? I need you to talk to some guys about a film we're making with EA. I'm like, what film? What's EA? What? It's Dante's <laughs> Inferno. I'm like, you mean the Italian epic poem? He's like, no, 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 the video game. I'm like, does, does that have anything to do with the Italian epic poem? Because I'm a grown man. I have no idea what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> I'm just, yeah. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, I need to go in there. So like, I'm like, what's going on? He's like, but they just fired the director of this movie I'm producing. And they they expect me to have other directors lined up to interview with them. And I'm like, and so, so, so go in there and pretend you're interviewing for the directing thing. Just, just buy me half an hour while I go find, while I go find a couple other people to interview. 
fascinating. And I'm like, I'm like, sure. <laughs> so I walk in. Say, yeah. I'm like, hi, hi, my name is Mike. And, and the, you know, I, I, over the course of the conversation, very subtly get their names out of them because I don't know who the hell I'm interviewing with. And, um, and I'm, and I am, I'm saying like, so real briefly, before I begin telling you about what I love so much about your property and why I deeply think I can bring something to it. But before I do that, I just want to make sure what is it about the last director's vision specifically, not globally, not personally, but what was there one or two things that just you thought didn't mesh in with, with the, the overall je ne sais quoi of your film, which is Hollywood for tell me what the, the film is about. I have no idea what I'm doing here. I'm going to sit and make notes. The guy went through a list of th everything he hated about the previous version. He said, okay. And he said, so Mike, what's your vision? And I went through and said the opposite of everything he hated about the previous <laughs> version. You're going <laughs> down your list that you've probably written on the back of a newspaper. Like, yeah, right, it's okay. like, they use too many blues. I'm like, I think red is the color of hell. <laughs> you, know, it's like, you know, it's too obscure. I think clarity is very important when communicating with an audience. You know, you know and then my basic filmmaking stuff that you just talk about. And um, I just thought I was killing time for a buddy. A buddy just asked me to stall, and I stalled. So, and then, like, then Joe comes running back in the room with two other guys, and I get up, and I see them, and thank you so much for being, good luck with your film, God bless, everything. I'm still not even clear on what the film's about. Yeah. And I leave, and I, I go to the bathroom, I pick up my check, and I'm walking back down the hall, and Joe comes running down the hall again. He says, Mike, they hired you to make the movie. We need you to make the movie. <laughs> and you're like, this is great. I can pay everything. What am I doing? Yeah, that was about it. <laughs> I was like, you caught me at a good time. Because normally it has to go through agents and negotiations and there's flirting and there's back and forth. I, essentially, like halfway through the next guy's interview, the guy said, I want the first guy. And we were done. And, and I was like, literally, Joe, what is it? He says, I'll give you a script. And and he, he they hand me a script. And, I, you know, I come back the next day and I go, what the fuck is this? You know, I mean, and they say, well, you know, the last director, you know, he did some work on the script. I'm like. Yeah, clearly um auto spells a thing and uh we we went through it and what happened was is that i kind of fell in love with the with the project as i was being introduced to it because what it was was it was supposed to be an anime version truthful version of the dante's inferno video game which lends itself to it because it's very much like every level of hell can be its yeah. own narrative and visual experience yes and so what they did and they did this to save money but i thought it was just a really neat idea was they hired you know, four separate, five separate studios. Well, four separate studios. One was internally at Film Roman. And um, to each kind of like execute their section of it, different designs for the main character. You know, they, it had some similarities, like you could, you know, based on the video game character, but different artistic styles, different background styles. You know, one was greed, one was violence, one was sex, one was, uh, I think yeah. the, the final battle was Satan. And um, and each one of these layers of hell was done like this. And I'm like, this is kind of like Rashomon. This is like yeah. each one of these is once he goes into hell, he kind of like unfolds all his personal bullshit in a Rashomon, you know, and, and he's he's like an unreliable narrator of his own life. I'm like, this is cool. And I got to look at some of the stuff being done overseas by the other directors. And I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. He's like, yeah, but one of the problems, Mike, was is that the the American director, they let go pissed off the Japanese directors to the point where they weren't even taking notes from them anymore. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I, you know, I'll, you know, do I have any money? He's like, no, this is that again. We don't have any money. Like, do we have an editor? <laughs> he was like, yeah, we have an editor. 
can I rewrite the dialogue? They're like, yeah, you can rewrite the dialogue. I'm like, let's get to work. And I really, really, really enjoyed having my hands tied because I, a lot of creative stuff happened. And Joe and I were in the trenches. And we just, we, it was great. A couple of times we had to go to Korea and Japan. And, you know, I had to like basically apologize for all the Americanism that they threw all over these poor guys <laughs> and all the, all the ways they insulted them without meaning to. But I got to learn, I got to visit anime studios. I got to learn the different structures. I got to learn how overseas studios work from the ground up creatively. I got to realize the tremendous financial and technical limitations they work under and how they solve them with really brilliant creative choices. And it, it just really got me juiced up for filmmaking again, the same way working for Steven Spielberg had. And I really enjoyed it. So we got the film made and I made some really, really good friends and I really enjoyed it. Changed my viewpoint. You know, it, it, it sucked me out of the big budget Disney 3D world and got me back to like, you know, really doing creative hands-on stuff without, you know, committees and bullshit and, and all everything going on. And um, so much to my agent's despair, um, <laughs> and I'm walking out the, the door, and up comes Joe running with me with an executive behind him. It's like, Mike, Mike, if you'll do it, they want to do a, a Dead Space Aftermath sci-fi film, the same thing, Rashomon style. The only difference is one of the sequences has to be in 3D, but they'll only greenlight it if you do it. And you're sat there like... Okay, well, uh... okay, what are they looking for? Before that, there was another one called, I believe, Dead Space Downfall that came out maybe a couple of years before. The, the difference between those films, though, would be the Dead Space Downfall, if you look at it, very much looks like the American version of trying to do anime, the, the, the typical yes. Warner Brothers, Batman version of something. So when they, they, they took it to me and they said, you can have a lot more control this time, you can direct the whole thing. I was like, no, let's go back and get and hire more anime directors to do it. I like doing that. <laughs> So I ended up directing the CG sequence, which was mocap. We went over to Korea and we got actors and we did the mocap. And this was long before it became, you know, as advanced and as it is now. But it was incredibly fun to work on. And I, I am a CG animator, so I was able to pull it all together technically. And um, I was really proud of that film because every single one of them in different ways were, was extraordinarily cinematic. Because one of the first things I did was I sat down with all the the very experienced anime directors who are working on it, who have their own teams. You know, the anime actually is the team and the director stay together and go from studio to studio. It's not like a studio project. It's the director who's I love that. essentially the look in the studio of it. And um, I just went met with each of these people and talked to them about how, what, what I liked about their stuff. I was like, this sequence you did with this, you know, spaceship, you know, and this destruction sequence, it's clear you didn't have any money for animation on this. And yet it's one of the most spectacularly beautiful things I've ever seen, what you do with composition. And, and they look at you and they start to smile and nod because they're like, oh God, another artist thank, saw that, you know? Thank God someone's <laughs> on my level here. Yeah. It was as hands off as I could be because, I, you know, people do their best work when you respect them. Yeah, yeah. So I developed these lifelong relationships with these anime directors and these anime studios that I was very good because you know, I never asked them to do anything. I, I was like, hey, we got to redo this. I'll be on a plane. I'll sit down. You know, I'll eat what, your food. I'll sleep when you sleep. Let's go. And it was wonderful. And it was a great experience. And I was very proud of that uh, film. I got a lot to do with the story and helped with the writing of it. And, you know, I think there's some very powerful, creepy stuff in there, like especially the stuff with the ghost and the, the, the dead young child and stuff. Um, it. It's it's really amazing, and I was able to bring in my buddy Chris Judge. But this is interesting. I'm walking down the corridor in in in, in Film Roman with um, 
Joe, and we're having trouble with one of the voice casting. And it was just, you know, sometimes like, dude, it's a cartoon. What are you making such a big deal out of this for? Can we please just sit down? I, I, do, I do all of my voice directing myself, you know, we're, so we don't go through voice directors. And so like sometimes when the actors are just a pain in the butt, I'm like, oh, you have to go. Anyways, the, um, <laughs> the, the uh, we, we were just coming off one of those situations and I was walking down the hall and Chris Judge, who's, who's uh, Tealkin Stargate, is standing in the hall waiting for a meeting with somebody. And I stopped and I said, you're Chris Judge. And he said, yes, I am. Who are you? And why are you talking to me? What's going on? You know, because this is not how people behave. I'm like, my kids got me watching Stargate about three months ago. And I got to tell you, it's brilliantly well-written and incredibly well-acted. The guy looks at me and goes, oh, well, thank you. Did you write the Metamorphosis at, um, the Metamorphosis episode? And he was like, yes, I did. I'm like, I noticed that. That was really good. We did a Rashomon-like kind of vibe on a film we did recently. And I noticed how well you did that. And he was like, oh, wow. And so we just start talking. And I was like, what do you hear? He's here, here to pitch a project. And I was like, if you got time, do you want to do a voice? I got a character. It'd be great for you. And he's like, yeah, sure, sure. And he always says this when we do interviews together, because we now work on everything together. You know? <laughs> um, he says, like, yeah, Mike said he was going to call me at a project for me. I'm like, yeah, everybody does that. And the son of a bitch called me the next day. I'm like, yeah, I did. <laughs> I was desperate. I needed it. <laughs> no, I really, I had this idea. For, I thought yeah, this could be better. We could take what this other person was doing, toss it, and I could rewrite it for you. And it'd be a much more in-depth, powerful part. We got him to do this part. And he and I just really got along doing it, the recording. And, uh, you know, I push him artistically. And he likes that. He likes to be directed. Uh, he likes to be pushed. And he likes to have somebody to pull him back because that way he can just, he can go full throttle. He's like a no breaks guy. If you, if he trusts you. Um, and so we did that together. And then after that, we got that done. We both really liked the results. And then me, him and Joe have been creating projects together ever since. My point is you don't know, you can't see. Boethius says that, that the pattern of the universe is, is like uh, a, a beautiful um, wall hanging. And you only see it from the back. You only see the cut threads. You can't see the pattern from where we're standing. Mm -hmm. Well, life is like that. Um, and, you know, remember to embrace the, the threads in front of you because sometimes they can lead you to amazing places and tremendous satisfaction that you never would have picked for yourself. Yeah. No, it's, it's brilliant. And it just goes to show, like, you're surrounding yourself with people that you, like you mentioned earlier, you don't only push them, but they push you artistically. And you get to really bring out the best in each other. Yeah, you're entirely correct. And, you know, what you find, too, is you get a better class of people on the uh, on the fringes, I think. If you're doing something like Dante's Inferno with Joe, man, he's got a whole different energy. <laughs> yeah. like, he's like, you know, we'll, we'll succeed or die. Burn it down. You know? <laughs> Everyone needs a Joe. That's the lesson we're taking yeah, away from this. A couple of times I've been at the tour, like, you know, I was directing something for, I was directing uh, the Origin Stitch, the award-winning little um, short for a company, and they ran out of money to get it colored. And so, like, I took my last two paychecks and my credit card, and I went and got it done. And, you know, Joe and I a couple of times were like, well, what if we don't take a paycheck this week? Can we afford that extra rendering? And that's that you just feel like you're in a team in a foxhole, and you're all got each other's backs, and you're trying to do the best you can. Yeah. And you're not just trying to survive the day and put a few bucks away. And you don't have that cynical, like, well, my agent said, you know, I said, him and took all the money. Uh, you know, you don't get that kind of crap. You know, you don't get human resources coming to talk to you every 10 minutes about 
you know, this person was sleeping with this person is now sleeping with this person on your crew. And then we have to go off and deal with all their emotions. I'm like, I don't want to take off their clothes. Let them deal with their emotions. I don't care. And you can live a life like that in Hollywood. You just have to remember to make it about that every now and then. Drown out the people that say no and have yourself surrounded by people who will enable you to do the things you want to do. But on the other hand, remember, most people are lying to you, so you have to get an ear for that. So it's a little more <laughs> difficult to just say yes, because a lot of the people are lying to you. So you That's true. People. That's true. <laughs> well, just again, to close off on uh, Deep Space here, uh, when it comes to animations uh, and game conversions, and obviously it's a well-known fact that game conversions in live-action movies are usually met with a lot of disdain. But when it comes to animation, they are a lot more appreciated what it is, and I don't know how else to say this, so I'm going to get in trouble again. Um, cowardice is not uncommon, okay? <laughs> you don't find strength and satisfaction in yourself. You don't have that inner monologue in you that says, I set out to do this thing, and I did it, and I feel either good or bad about the job I did, mm-hmm. period. You need other people to, do, to take the place of that because you don't have that built. Yeah. You can call daddy issues, you can call cowardice. So what happens when you get a big company like, let's say, EA? You've got a lot of passionate creators doing passionate things. Any big corporation is a great place where you can get people who only care about one little thing of their craft. And these are artists and places like that have to be built for them. Artists is possibly the wrong word. Craftsmen, I'll say that. Yeah. And then you have managers and people around them you and you know often writers fall into this producers definitely directors of production and you know the the person who runs this division for the studio stuff and these people are cowards now i'm not saying you know they're cowards in that they you know run away from a danger to sacrifice their children but like what i mean is they want the comfort of a big studio they want the 401k. They want to go home and not get yelled at. Mm-hmm. They want to feel safe because yeah. they don't have confidence in their own ability and strength. You have general anxiety. If, if I don't get paid this week, something bad will happen. If I don't make as much money this week, if I don't, if I don't take my family on this vacation, something bad will happen. My, my, my partner won't love me anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So EA is like that. So you've got some core creatives, but you're surrounded by people who are just afraid of anything they do failing and them getting blamed for it. When you talk about adaptations, what happens is you usually have two big corporate structures. You have something like Amazon or let's say Disney or something like that coming into contact with EA. And they, but these are two different corporations with two different uh, corporate Uh, What's the word? Not environments, but similar to that. Corporate mentalities. And and so like the, even though they might both be about entertainment and creating a property that people want, how all the bullshitty people involved in each each one of these things are separate. And what happens is, is that the executives come, come, come together at some point, regardless of how well the creatives are getting along and trying to work together. They come together and there's conflict because they're both coming at it from a position of, I don't care if this works as long as I don't get blamed. And I don't care if I do a good job and make EA look good because my life is all about looking good to Amazon or Disney. 
and that's a little bit different than when you're working in a big corporation and you work with a different division because you both work for the same corporation and you know big daddy could get mad at you if you don't get along so there's more motivation to get along than if it's two different corporations as long as you can blame it on the other person that's what happens so what happens is you get no support and a lot of back and forth and a lot of poor communication and a lot of pissing in each other's cheerios so the stuff that the creatives are asking for are often not being delivered. So that, that's the thing that people have to understand. It get, the, the garbage gets added on purpose to please a garbage human being or several of them in a row. Yeah, yeah. It and these garbage down. human beings are attracted. The bigger the company, the bigger the monolithic company, these garbage human beings are attracted to that because there's no responsibility and no danger. And they're terrified. So any adaptation where you bring two corporate structures into it is always it's a miracle they're not all shit is what i'm trying to say yeah. what happened in the case of uh film roman with with the two projects i did was film roman couldn't care less what i was doing they kept forgetting i existed so you know i was able to approach it with humility and openness and try to listen to the person and you know let you know let them do all their corporate stuff and just ignore it and then you can get good stuff out of them you can get good stuff you, you just you, you absolutely refuse to let them screw it up or produce crap but, you know, you let them play their little games and then there's nobody above you getting freaked out about the games. The guy the guy directed uh, Lord of the Rings, Peter Jackson, um, he had enough because the money was associated with the project because of him. Yes. He was able to, you know, up, you know, jump over that. Whereas The Hobbit was not. The Hobbit was clearly a mess. Same, a lot of the same people, a lot of the same corporations, but the difference is if you don't have somebody who isn't in danger or isn't afraid, and isn't fireable, yeah. then the two corporate cultures coming together will destroy it. And that is the ultimate example of that is Amazon's uh, Rings of Power, where literally none of those people should have had those jobs. From the person yeah. from the gal who runs the studio, who is notoriously incompetent, yes. all the way down to her hires, to the, to the fact that they hired two writers to write the most expensive television series ever created, who had never had a screenplay produced. <laughs> they fired the Tolkien expert who said things like female dwarves don't have beards. And they fired him because they didn't want to hear that. Insane. They said and things like Galadriel wasn't a warrior. She's an elf queen with, with powers in both worlds. She doesn't express herself with swords. They fired him. <sighs> because he was getting in the way of what made this person feel safe. And it it waters down the whole, I mean, not only does it water down the media that you're watching, but like you said, like when it comes to adaptions of other mediums and things, there's already an established fan base. So it waters down the world, the characters, the area, that people are going to smell that a hundred yards away. Well, let's talk about that briefly then. If your career success is completely divorced from the product of what you're doing, then you're going to continue to behave like that when you're in charge. 100%. So it's like they've alienated the fans. I'm sorry, the person who was making that decision doesn't feel their career has anything to do with fans. And I'm going to use an example here. <laughs> Kathleen Kennedy doesn't give a fuck who watches Star Wars films because she made her career, you know, her and her husband making Steven Spielberg and George Lucas happy until they, you know, stuck her in charge of something. But that's not insane. I'm not calling her stupid. Life has proved to her that success comes from having these powerful people like you. And if these powerful people are all joining movements or have all decided that, you know, we're no longer going to use, you know, the color blue in movies or that we're all going to stand around with our, you know, our, our left hands in our pockets all day. 
she's going to sincerely say, I'm not stupid. I know where success comes from. I'm going to go do all that. Yeah. Because they're my audience. And screw all the people who don't want to go to, to Disneyland and sit in my stupid Stars Cruiser, right? And and then you see these battles happening between Favreau and Kennedy. And you're like, why would that happen? Why wouldn't Kennedy just say, go ahead, Favreau, make the best stuff possible. And I'll take credit for it. I'll, you know, I'm, I'm a good manager because I let you do that. Well, a good manager would. But this is someone who spent her whole life tearing other people down in order to clear the way for her. So she's, she keeps doing it. There's another great book called What Got You Here Won't Keep You Here. And basically it says, like, you can climb to the top of the totem pole by being a selfish, vicious, backbiting asshole. But when you're in charge, you suddenly have to be a team player and you have to stop taking credits for things and you have to, like, promote other people and take care of them. Because if you don't, you'll collapse the thing you're now in charge of. Mm. And most executives can't do it. I know that Steve is going to be doing the edit here thinking, which part of this might get us sued? <laughs> <laughs> By the way, Just, you, can't be sued. You, you can't be sued for this. I was very careful with what I said. Steve, right. don't be paranoid. You're not a lawyer. Trust me. I've, I've given a lot of interviews. I know what I can and cannot say. Yeah. Well, speaking of which, I mean, I know we mentioned Hoodwick 2 earlier, and we kind of know how that came to be with Harvey rushing you in. Uh, but this was, I guess, one of the first times where you're directing an animated movie with, uh, it is basically an all-star cast that you've got here. So you've got uh, Hayden Panettiere, Glenn Close, Bill Hader, John Cusack, Amy Poehler, even, even Cheech and Chong make it into this movie. Yeah. <laughs> was this kind of a cast that kind of Harvey had assembled, or was this you going out yeah, there? Sorry. No, no it was sorry. Harvey. I had nothing to do with the cast, and nobody wanted to be there. I mean, uh, Glenn Close is an amazing actress, but you know, mm -hmm. she showed up with two dogs that she walked into the recording room with, and um, said she didn't like to be directed. And I handed her sides, and she had, you know, eventually she asked me to direct her, and I said, "Okay, can we get the dogs out away from the microphone?" And I mean, I'm not complaining about her because, like, when she actually, you know, feels safe and she trusts you a little. Um, She's tremendous. I mean, she's mm -hmm. got all, but you know, you could clearly tell there was a lot of Harvey going on to everybody I had to deal with. Clearly, right. you know, Glenn had been through the Harvey mill and wasn't particularly walking in there thinking, oh, this is an artistic thing. And it's going to be, she'd been through the Harvey bullshit machine enough that she walked in with her defenses up and rightfully so. I mean, yeah. I'm just surprised she didn't bring pit bulls or Dalmatians. <laughs> yeah, that would have been funny. <laughs> but the point is, is that, you know, sometimes the actors in these situations get brought in. And they, they've already formed an opinion about the product based on who's brought them in. And, you know, I, th I think Glenn walked in with, you know, some issues with Harvey, as she would, you know, strong, intelligent, fantastically talented woman and dealing with Harvey Weinstein. I, that could not have been easy. Um, and so a lot of my job dealing with that cast was to getting them to realize I wasn't Harvey, nor was I one of Harvey's minions that they'd probably dealt with many times. And often Harvey's minions would be there, you know, trying to you know, push their way to the front to kiss their butts because that's what the minions do. And I would often remove them, sometimes physically from the room, to relax the artists, which they greatly appreciated most of the time. They always say, oh, thank you for that. What are we, what are we doing? And suddenly you can see them focusing on you. Yeah. Like but, but it was always crazy. You mentioned a couple of other names. Uh, Hayden Pantera. At one point, I had to fly to Germany because she was dating this kickboxer. And I, I finally had to walk into the booth and take her phone away occasionally you'd run across a great actor who really cared about stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're just so grateful to them. Uh, when I was directing Lilo and Stitch, I got to work with David Ogden Stiers. And he mm -hmm. just 
blew my me out of the water. And we ended up talking about music and voice directing while we're while we're doing this. And he's like, you know, son, the best transition is no transition at all. <laughs> right, you know, and and all these things. And, and we talked about it. And he just immediately took his. He's like, voice acting is acting. I happen to use my voice. I mean, he just loved well, it, and he took it seriously, and he just impressed the fuck out of me and changed the way. You know, I I just sort of started taking it seriously right there, real too. And, you know, stop with this, like, faster crap, you know, like, you actually talk to them like, like actors. And, um, but, you know, he also needed, every actor needs to be safe. You're asking them to do an incredibly vulnerable thing. Mm -hmm. And to do it in front of enemies is not, I mean, the fact that some of them do it is a miracle. The fact that all of them aren't drug addicts is insanely a miracle. So you've got to make a safe place for them. And it must be incredibly hard to do. And I've had a couple of situations where, like, they're like, okay, we're going to get a couple of publicity shots for actresses who clearly didn't know they were going to be camp. You know, that nobody told them yeah. that there were going to be cameras and they weren't, they were in sweatpants. Yeah. And once I literally like threw myself in front of a camera for an actress and like took the camera away. And the guy was like, I'll sue you. And I was like, I'll break it on your face. So you're not taking a picture. Of her. <laughs> Good on you. Good on you for doing nice that. One, well, Mike. And then, and then what happened was like, she was all cool about it, everything like that. And, and you know, she's okay. Well, in the next session I'll come in made up. It'll be fine. You know, thank you. And the next session she came in and she had this gift for me and she threw her arms around me. <laughs> she was like, thank you so much. Just real quietly in my ear, but you've got to make them feel like you're not going to blame them because they're used to this corporate blame game, daddy issue shit yes. when they're dealing with big corporations. It's easier sometimes when you're working on a small film to get people into that small theater clan. We're going to, we're going to leave it all on the table here. We're all in it together attitude than on these big corporate movies. We've got to talk about this one here, um, which is a, a, a kind of separated point really between, I guess the UK and uh, the U S uh, you directed Postman Pat, the movie. I did. But how did you land on Postman Pat? And when you were making it, was there any kind of backlash that kind of got to you about it? America's culture has, is dominates the world completely. I mean, there is no, you know, and, and this English people hate hearing this, but it completely dominates the world. I hate, I hate hearing it too, because I'm not a big fan of American culture, but that's a different, different from a different place. Sure. You can go to Japan. I've been all over the world, Japan, the depths of China, islands in the middle of nowhere, you know, on, on ice shelves and everybody's wearing blue jeans and knows who Elvis Presley is. Okay. Yeah. We won. It's our, the whole world is our culture. Is that a good thing? No, no, that's a terrible thing. That's a terrible thing. We've reduced human culture to its most marketable, out of control, capitalistic consumerism. Everybody's fat. Everybody's miserable. And, and no woman born, you know, since 1984 has ever actually had an orgasm. It's been horrible. But there are some parts of the world that are justifiably annoyed by this. You know, one of them is England, um, because we corrected all your bad spelling. You're welcome. <laughs> nice. You know, the five guys who watch this who are my British friends will think that was fun. Um, <laughs> and so, like, people, people don't like it. Okay, and we call it Hollywood or we call it other things. But what it really is, is that you're treating us like we're from Iowa. You're, you're telling us that we have to accept this thing, that what you've, what you've, 
this atrocity you've made out of our culture. And it's our culture. This is our thing. Okay. You don't get to just turn it into something else and feed it back to us and tell us to like it. Well, first of all, that feeling is exactly what it feels like to be an American all the time. <laughs> Big corporations coming in, swooping up the things you love, destroying them and force feeding them back to you and telling you to like it. That's what a, being an American feels like. I'm telling you, <laughs> we used to be cowboys. Now we're veal. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. that, that's how that works. But here's the thing. There is this bizarre disconnect. Hollywood didn't come looking for Postman Pat. <laughs> That's a quote. <laughs> Nobody in America has ever seen Postman Pat. Hollywood didn't like, well, we've, we're done f***ing up Doctor Who. No, you did that yourself. We're done f***ing up Doctor Who. Let's take on Postman Pat. No, that isn't what happened. What happened was is that the, the English producers of that film went out of their minds to get that thing made. They went put tremendous amount of time and effort into it. They found and a uh, they found a icon to distribute it. They got, you know, people like David Tennant and such like that to be voices in it. They mm -hmm. went out of their minds because they wanted to make a Hollywood movie. They didn't want to make it in England. They wanted to make it a Hollywood movie. Why? Because they personally wanted to be able to say, I've made a Hollywood movie. They yeah. wanted to be part of the cool kids. They wanted to be in the club. And that's what I'm talking about, what, what happens in England. It's like, okay, so everybody I, I talk to in England in show business wants to be part of the cool kids club. Not realizing that there is no cool kids club. And if you get in there, you're, whor you're miserable anyways, and you'll die of a heroin overdose. But whatever the hell, you, whatever fantasy you have, um, they want to get in the cool guys club by making a Hollywood film. Here's the problem. You can make an English film for 10 million pounds and everyone in the, uh, in Great Britain and, you know, and probably parts of India, you know, uh, the, the remains of the empire culturally will, will, will see this thing and know what it is and love it because they'll get the context of it. Yeah. The moment you push it into Hollywood, the business model changes. The business model is we're now going to put $100 million into this and expect a worldwide return of $300 million or let's not do it, mm -hmm. which means you're not making it for English people anymore. You're making it for French people and Taiwanese people and people in India and people in China and people in Russia and Eskimos and Canadians. God help you. I don't know why anybody makes anything for <laughs> Just pour maple syrup on anything. They'll find it. And then, and then, you know, or South America or, what, or, or whatever. That's the business model. Um, America, you know, Hollywood does not make regional films. So I remember when I was approached with this, I was handed the script and they said, you know, do you know what, what Postman Pen is? I was like, yes, I did. Because when I was growing up, I was obsessed with English television before you could get it. I was involved in stealing your IPs. I was part of the people who went to comic book uh, conventions back when they were like really about comic books and we would exchange videotapes of Red Dwarf. I had a complete collection of Red Dwarf before anyone in America even knew, knew what that was before the internet. I loved this stuff and I knew who Postman Pat was because when you grab these videotapes, you, 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 you hoover up a bunch of other stuff too. Yeah. Um, and they handed me this. I thought I would really like to do that. That's a sweet little thing. My kids are the right age. I, I, I'm done with this corporate crap. I'd like to see it. I'd like to do it. <laughs> and they hand me the script. And the script was written by Britons. And I was like, oh, my God. 
<laughs> it, it wasn't exactly the script you ended up seeing, but it was just it was just awful. It was just like it was somebody from a small town in Essex doing an impression of what they think a Hollywood writer would like. Oh no! And and it got you know and because they had stars attached to it, they were fine. So the first thing I suggest is like, well, why don't we reduce the budget to about ten million pounds and go make this in England? And we were, and I was told no for exactly the reasons I repeated to you. It's like, no, we won't do that. Icon won't distribute it. We won't get it financed. Nobody's going to finance that movie. This needs to be blah 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 blah. And we need toys. We need international toys. The toys from the TV show, regardless of how well they sell, and they hadn't sold in decades by the time I, you know, I figured, but but the toys yeah. from the TV show, that money doesn't go to the investors of the movie. So right. like, there's no reason to invest into a movie because of the toys that exist sell. And people always seem to conflate those two things. They only get to make money if, if the toys from the movie sell and they have to be different than the, the other sell. So there were all sorts of constraints. One, they, it had to be a 3D movie, not a puppet show. It had to be. Right. Okay. Why? Because they weren't going to make it otherwise. It had to be in 3D, which means some of it had to be shot in 3D, which is a completely different feel than the original Postman Pat. Otherwise, they weren't going to finance it. Mm -hmm. um, it had it had to have romance, or they did they wanted a love story. Now, I don't remember one episode of the original Postman Pat about Postman Pat getting it on, and they wanted some sort of problem at home, and they wanted it to be a family drama. I mean, this was not negotiable. Now. If you don't want Hollywood, and, and, and I say Hollywood in this case, what I'm talking about is the financiers who are internationally based yeah. and Icon who distributed it. If you don't want that stuff done, don't come to Hollywood and try to sell your movie here for 20 years. I mean, it's, it's, it's like ridiculous. You know, the, reactions, the reaction is nuts. And I was saying in the beginning, you know, like, we're, like there's huge parts of the people who grew up with this who aren't going to like this simply because it's in 3D. And they're like, we don't care. And oh, the other thing was, is the target audience for the original Postman Pat is preschoolers. Preschoolers don't reach into their pockets, pull out, you know, whatever it is, 10 quid or whatever it is, and, 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 and go to the movies. They don't do, that's not how it works. What works is mom and dad take the family to watch the movie. Yes. And it better have stuff that interests dad and mom a little bit. It'll get tested before, you know, it gets the um, distributors put the money out. And if moms and dads say they're bored, that film's not getting released. Well, I mean, if you want it to be an English thing, make it in England, but nobody yeah. wants to do that. And and one of the problems I, I was going back to is why was British television and, and movies even so good in the 70s and 80s? And the reason for it was the BBC was publicly funded and you could take things like Hercule Poirot or, or I'm sorry, Sherlock Holmes. But I mean, I, the reason I bring this up is not, I'm not, not defensive about the movie, you know, they, I, I really enjoyed it because it was the best thing I was offered. And I did my best to try to bring as much of that charm as, to, as I could, you know, knowing the fact that it was going to be about a talent show that Pat was in, which was in the original script. And I was like, Postman Pat's going to be on America's Got Talent? What? <laughs> Run that back. Uh... Yeah, I mean, I was like, that's your movie? Okay. And it was just because, you know, the two women who, who, uh, ran, who were the producers of that must have really liked watching America's Got Talent. I don't know. And um, there had to be robots. Why? Because we needed toys. And we had to like, you know, we had to redesign, you know, all the little things. It, it, there were certain limitations that you have to do. Yeah. But um, it was still the kindest, sweetest, gentlest movie I've been offered. And I was really wanted to make something like that. Think of all the things that don't get made now. 
yeah. that you know the plays, the dramas, the, the mysteries, all these little things that used to be just a part of the BBC's DNA that no longer is done. And you know, suddenly agendas and stuff being forced on properties and IPs very much in a, in a in a Hollywood kind of way. There was a place to go with that. Uh, Stephen Moffat wrote Couples, yes. And then after Couples, he wrote um, Doctor Jekyll. Oh, it's called Jekyll. I was trying. To, I was like, it's not Mister Hyde. It's not Mister Hyde. Jekyll. Yeah. These Jekyll. are two of my favorite things. And after that, he everything he's written has had has been like basically Hollywood crap because basically Hollywood money now comes in and makes the stuff, and it, it's made now with an eye towards exporting. BBC mm -hmm. America, Julie running BBC America, you know, has changed the business model of British programming. So what I'd like to say is, well, if you, if you don't want America to shit Hollywood all over it, which was a line in the movie, except I didn't use the word shit, um, then finance it at home. But the problem is there's no place to distribute it anymore. And that's happened in America in microcosm too. Yeah. Macrocosm too, because... Basically, all the independent film distributors have been run out of business by Netflix. There's no way to distribute anything. So if you can't just, when you raise money for films, and I've done this, so I know how this works, it's not about raising the money. It's about getting the distribution locked in first, because if you can get enough distribution that mathematically your, your project can make more money than you spend on it, there will be people lined up hands over fist to give you money for it, because investing in a, in a film is a great way to cheat on your taxes everything's grinding through the international distribution mill because Netflix isn't interested in making, well, they don't make anything. They do negative pickups, yeah. but you know, they're not interested in making projects that nobody in America is going to watch because they don't give a, I mean, remember all of Great Britain together is roughly the size of Delaware. You know, it, it could be the biggest hit in Britain and you know, like, oh, great, we opened it in 40 theaters in Delaware. Who the hell cares? I mean, yeah. you guys just do not have the financial impact in the entertainment industry that, you know, um, that, that you'd like to. And remember, it's, it's got to be done in different languages. So the, the humor, that charming local humor, my favorite example is in Russia, because I made a lot of Russian animation. You know, we were recutting this series and I was producing it. Sorry, this would be very fast. Um, and uh, there was, it was about, the, it was called um, Space Dogs. It was about the two first dogs in space. Okay. Elka and Belka. And their puppies, you know, they had puppies in their TV show. And in one of the TV shows, there was this bit where this Russian bad guy was trying to get information from the puppies. So he took one of the puppies and he stuck a gun in his mouth. And there's this whole sequence where like the puppies, up, a puppy is up against the wall with a gun in his mouth. And the Russian is like, you know, I'm going to shoot you unless you get, tell me. I start, oh, he's sweating, <laughs> crying, shit. And they send this to me. I'm like, all right, we have to cut this sequence. He's like, why? If I do wish, when we cut this sequence, this is, this is good. Like, no, no, no. Vladimir, Vladimir. We can't do that. That'll get it. That won't be shown for children. Why not shown for children? He does not shoot dog. He does not have sex with dog. I'm like, yes, but that that would upset kids. I mean, it's, it's part of the American culture that we don't put guns in children's mouths. It's like, but he's funny. He's funny. You get why funny? You know, funny is funny. Like, why is it funny? Gun in mouth, right? Gun in mouth. Dog is scared. Dog, dog don't know what to do. He's so scared. He is funny. God. <laughs> so if you think of that, like, you know, it's the same thing about like, oh, well, you know, all these different accents and stuff that mean so much and add so much depth to the English way of looking at things or uh, references to history. 
that are, I love. I mean, I, 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 I can't love English television and movies more. Mm. Um, but all that gone. Yeah. Because it doesn't translate to people in Michigan or Iowa or Ottawa or Madrid. Yeah. You know, everything has to be translatable into 15 different languages and can't offend anybody. Post, postman, Pat. See what I did there? Uh, you would go on to uh, work on shows like Paradise PD, uh, mm-hmm. which is uh, very well received. Uh, you also were working on The Simpsons as well. When I met you for the first time at Warner Animation, uh, you were working on the reboot of Wacky Races at the time. Throughout all of these characters that you know, you've got to work on that were kind of established characters, which kind of were your favorite of all? Oh, I, did, I didn't. Favorites. You're like a mother that equally loves all of her children. Well, no, it's not even that. It's just like it, it, it's just they're not all complete characters. They're all part they, of that comedy dynamic. I mean, you know, Peter Perfect running around being that stupid all day would be hard to make a plot work around him if he didn't have Penelope with him, right? <laughs> um, it, the interesting thing about that was is the fact that I was making another film. So, so Postman Pet had done well mm-hmm. uh, internationally. And I was being asked to develop another film. And in the meantime, I was developing a film for, uh, it was in Europe. And uh, I had gotten a chance to actually, I got offered like, would you like to direct and design this, the biggest ride in the world? It's like, what do you mean? So like, it was this uh, ride for a water park in China. Right. Um, And it was basically taking five IMAX theaters and running next to each other, like screens running next to each other. And you'd have seats that moved and shot stuff at you and like misted you and jolted you a little bit. And then you'd have these giant robots that would come down out of the ceiling and soar over the, the audience. And then you'd have actors come out. Okay. That's cool though. And uh, so I was, I was a part of that and it, I was really getting a kick out of it. The people I worked for turned out to be, um, they were the, not the Chinese people, but the, uh, the um, Americans who bought the Indian company turned out to be, you know, again, somebody with daddy issues. And, um, but I was enjoying it a great deal. And, you know, we were getting around the corporate stuff and we were trying to work our way through, you know, making sure that this worked for everybody. And I was overseas and I, or I wasn't overseas. I'd come back for like a week. And uh, my youngest son suddenly one day walked into my room and looked like he had lost 10 pounds since the time he'd gone to sleep. And he had, and he was throwing up and he, he was losing control of his bladder and he was 10 years old. And we grabbed him, took him to Children's Hospital, and he had uh, type 1 diabetes. It just came on like that. And um, he was a great kid, you know, in shape, ate well, just one day, you know, genetics. Mm-hmm. And the problem with being an American, see, this is another thing I hate about America. Yes, American culture won. Yay, the world sucks. Mm-hmm. And, and all the other stuff that, go, that I hate about the American culture in general, this is my favorite, healthcare. Yes. So yeah. my son went from you know, not having any health problems at all, to being insulin dependent about the same time that Barack Obama was going around pretending he was going to do socialized medicine. Really what he was doing was handing a huge gift of money to the uh, insurance and medical professions uh, to get them to not block his bill. And so one of the things he did while he was, you know, he negotiated, he got rid of price controls on medicine for, for particular kinds of medicine. And one of them was insulin, which skyrocketed. So suddenly my son went from uh, not being insulin dependent, being insulin dependent every day. And I had to come up with hundreds of dollars of ins- insulin every day or he'd die. Well, 
you know what one of the fun things about being a filmmaker traveling the world is it's independence it's artistic you get to try different things you get to fail you get to experience different cultures you do all that stuff you know what the downside is you don't have insurance right so suddenly that's on the brain of finding yeah so like that i had to get so we went through our savings just hand paying for his insulin in about a month and a half and i spent that month and a half scrambling around trying to get on a you know trying to get one of these films that i was working on to like put me on some sort of insurance and of course they wouldn't because it's america and your your kid can die you you start next week but your kid will die a week after that but you're not going to take any time off are you and so what um working for america so um, what happened was, is that I called up Warner Brothers, or Jeff Sergey, he, he, he reappears in this, was there doing uh, the previous Bugs Bunny series. And they had always wanted to work with me in television. And I, I got to be honest with you, I, you know, I, I had worked at Warner's at the beginning of my career, but I had never really thought of Warner's and quality, Warner's TV and quality in the same sentence. Right. And I was, I needed insurance. So I called up Jeff. Uh, they, I, I went in and met with... Uh, stuff that I, and they and this was how the meeting went roughly i'm i'm, com- I'm compressing several conversations into one for um story to effect for those of you guys who are obsessed with um <laughs> obsessed with nonsense this is how you tell a story you compress time mm-hmm. okay um i walked into the meeting and we sat down there like mike we've always wanted to get you out here you're looking great we'd love you to you know create one you know create a show for us and i'm like fantastic i would love to um and they're like so what kind of things interest you not being an idiot you never answer that question you sit down and says, what are you interested? What are you interested in doing? And you answer that question. You're talking yourself out of work. This is a bullshit interview. Why? Because what are the odds are the thing you happen to mention is the thing this person told you to take the meeting over? Why they don't start out with, this is a meeting about this, I don't know. But you learn this in Hollywood. So what you do is you learn to talk around it. What kind of things interest you? Oh, you know what? I, you know, I, I've got some, some particular projects in my mind I'd like to talk to you about. But before that, I mean... This is great to be here. And you, you, you're developing all these things. What do you want? Five different shows? You must be so busy. And just turn the conversation to them and get them to tell you what the hell they've been, they've been told to develop. So yeah. finally, they mentioned how hugely popular the Wacky Races toys were in Europe and how they had Mattel was interested in doing a new line. And I said, that's weird. You should bring that up. That was, that was the fun show I was going to talk to you about. I mean, it's amazing that you would mention that. I'm not, since you mentioned, let me just tell you, I have an idea <laughs> to update Wacky Races with 3D cars that can, that can move and transform and, and, and just be all sorts of, just make it really, really cool like a video game, but keeps, goes back to the classic slapstick humor of the best of Hanna-Barbera, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And I just bullshit it off the top of my head. Yeah. And I, I walked out of there and I was the new showrunner in charge of the Wacky Races reboot. Um, and that's how you do it. <laughs> Well done. Well done on that. And so here's how, you, here's how your career in Hollywood works. Never answer the question directly. Find out why the hell they asked you the question <laughs> before you answer. <laughs> and then what I found out um, sometime in there was that the fact that Warner Brothers doesn't own all the characters from the original Wacky Races. Oh. There were, like, there were like nine characters in the original Wacky Races, and Warner's was not allowed by contract to use 50% of those characters. Otherwise, they'd have to split the money with Bert, somebody, he was a game show host. Turns out that that television project had been developed in concert with a live action game show. And nobody remembers the game show, but the car- they remember the cartoon, but the, the game show people still own that, that property. So we were only allowed to use 49% of the characters from the original show. You know, here's all, here's the hole you're, you're starting in. 
<laughs> it can't be a puppet show. It's like, I can't use the damn wacky races, racers. I can't use the cavemen. I can't, I can't use half the characters. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you, you dive into it because like in any situation, I found something really to love about it, which was the fact that nobody cared what I was doing. So as long as I made it look good, which I can do because I, I know how animation works from, from the ground up. I know CG works. I know production works. I know how post works from all those other jobs. I could make sure that for the amount of money we had, it would look better than any other show that Warner's was doing. And I, I stand by the fact it's still been the best looking show I've ever done. And then as long as I got it done on time and I kept it on budget and I got it done on time, nobody cared what I did. So I turned the whole, mo I, the whole show into a series of social satires about different types of American culture, uh, different kinds of movie genres, different kinds of adventures. I just, you know, I just had fun with it. And the team I put together, once they realized they could trust me, um, just loved it because it was like, we're going to do a Casablanca parody of this, this week's Wacky Races. And well, the directors look at me and go like, I want to do a cast, but how are you going to write that? I'm like, don't worry about it. I'll have it for you in two days. And like, you'd stay up all night and you write the Casablanca version of a race show or whatever you were going to do. And, and they never even cared. I mean, the, the execs didn't even look at the scripts after the first two of them. I'm going to tell you about the time that the television died in America financially. Okay. This is something that nobody, you have to have been in this room to have seen this to believe it. Yeah. So Warner's at the same time as Hollywood got this insanity of, hey, what if we turned Hollywood into a giant tech bubble and then waited for it to collapse and destroy all our jobs? That would be awesome. Let's do that. How do we do that? I know streaming. And I, I was saying, I've been saying this, look me, look me up on the internet. I've been saying this for five, five years before it happened. I was like, do not make business deals with Netflix. Do not get in jobs with Netflix. And they're like, why? I'm like, because it's a Ponzi scheme. And sooner or later, they're the newspapers are going to announce that they signed up one less person this quarter than the quarter before. Now, in a privately traded company, you do that, but we still make all this money. Mm, you do that in a publicly traded company, all the day traders dump your stock. It's a Ponzi yeah. scheme. It's going to collapse. And that's what happened. Well, before that happened, though, Hollywood thought, you know what, that's, that's clearly a bullshit, stupid business model that I want to get involved in because I've got daddy issues. So all the different studios decided to do their own, their own streaming services. But all the, the people in charge of each different divisions started coming up with the idea, especially Warner's, mm -hmm. to have their own streaming. So they all thought this is it. So Warner's Animation which has Batman stuff. So we're going to have a DC streaming service that you have to sign up for and, and pay a fee for. And then we're also going to have Boomerang, which is going to be all our classes characters, except for the Warner's characters that you have to sign up for a play, pay, a fee, pay a fee for. And then we're going to have all the classic Warner Brothers, you know, characters themselves on a special streaming service that you have to sign up for a, pay a fee for. And then if you want to do the live action movies or the catalog, that's another service and you have to pay a fee for it. And that's one division. And then, oh, we're going to have Blue Ribbon, which is going to be like, you know, all the Canadian shows we bought and we don't want to put on regular television that you got to pay a fee for. Oh, we're going to go like, we're going to charge for the CW, on and on and on. Suddenly mm -hmm. every division in, in Warner's had paid like subscription-based streaming services that all of their, all of their stuff was going on. So the other guys couldn't have it. That was competing with itself. To the point where, like, you know, more, animation was even more insane than the TV people because, like, animation was literally f managed to, like, subdivide and compete with themselves. That's stupid. We spent all this time developing this TV show, and I'm creatively very happy with it. It's very, very funny. You can look at the clips. I dare you not to laugh. It's insane. Mm -hmm. But, um, and you're going to hide it on a streaming service that nobody knows about that you have to pay for, and we're going to be the only original thing on it. Okay. 
Good um, yeah. And my kid needed insulin. Otherwise, out the door when the, the day they told me. Um, I'm like, okay, we're going to do that. and But we're still going to sell the toys. Oh, yeah, the toys are still going to pay for half of it. We're only going to lose half the profits of the show because you know the business models, half of it came from the toy deals. What happens now is, is that we're at the meeting and it's the big meeting where Mattel and Fisher Price come in and all of the Warner's divisions are pitching all their shows for the next year and the movies and everything. And because they have to buy shelf space on the, on the store. Right. And so they go through the justice league movie and the flash movie and the Batman movie. And they're all like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're contractually obligated to do it. Fine. Then they start going through like, okay, what do we got for the animation or the kids division? And they're like, Oh, we have Dorothy of Oz and look, she has a necklace. And they're like, Oh, you're out of your fucking mind. We're not buying toys. What? No. Oh, we've got this uh, binicula and look, you know, we, we could do a binicular toy. And look, the ghost has a has a has a jewel, and we could make a toy out of the jewel. And they're like, "Are you out of your mind?" Uh, yeah, like I'm like, haven't you guys talked to them about this before? <laughs> Looking around, my boss is going, "How are they surprised?" I'd be talking. They helped me design the fucking cars. Are you kidding? How? What? <laughs> so like, they're all getting passed, and they come to me, and they're like, right, "Mark, this," and I said, "Well, we've got this," and I, we pull out the, the the sketches that the toy department had helped me design. They're good toy designers. Why not for the cool cars? And they go nuts. They love it. Fisher Price and Mattel start arguing about who's going to do this at oh the table. God. And I'm like, cool, my show's going to get made. It'll go for a few years. I can continue to get you know insulin into my kid. Yeah. And then their their family said, like, great. So uh, do you guys already have the two seasons? Uh, the two seasons approved? Are you guys you know when are you guys going to be on the air? They're like, oh, we're going to be on the air real soon. Boss, whose name I'm not going to give you said this because it does make him look stupid. Oh good. Um, it's like, yeah, but you know, we don't know how many seasons it's going to be because we really don't have seasons anymore. Fisher Price Mattel looks up and goes, "What? What do you mean you don't have seasons?" Well, it's streaming, so we don't have seasons. I mean, maybe we'll get like a fourteen, you know, episode renewal or twenty episode renewal. We never know, and we never know when. Oh dear. Um, it's on streaming. Yes, yes, it's on streaming. It's on. It's on uh, Boomerang. It's uh, going to be. It's going to be the premier thing for Boomerang. So we're expecting big things from it. You know, we're going to make a lot of money from subscriptions. And like, they turn to the, the, my boss's boss and go, you know how this works, right? The guy goes, no, he says, well, of course I do. I'm a, I'm a big shot executive. Look, I ordered the most complicated lunch. Um, <laughs> and they're like, let me explain this to everybody. We have to spend money a year in advance to reserve shelf space in Targets and, and, and toy stores all over the world for your, for your properties if we're going to license your toys. We're not going to do that for something on a streaming service. Well, why? Because you know people who are interested in it will come find it on the streaming service. And they're like, exactly. People who are interested in it are already buying the toys, and they're not buying that many. We're not going to like... Look, guys, it's a commercial. It's got to be on TV where kids can see it who aren't interested or don't know about it. So they will badger their parents when they're in the stores to go buy the toys. Sure. Nobody is going gonna, is gonna to license a toy on streaming. Are you out of your mind? And right there was the moment that Warner Brothers' business model collapsed in front of me. They managed in one fell swoop to get rid of both streams of income that paid for all their animation. Oh my word! And the, the bosses stared at these guys like they just ate a fish in front of them. They were like, "Okay, well, uh, we're going to make the movie once. Uh, you guys with the streaming, good luck. Best of luck. I'm sure you'll make a lot of money." And that was it. I was there 
when the toy companies explain to the bosses about how this works. Now, now, for legal reasons, let me just say, okay, that was my impression, the fact that they were shocked. Maybe they weren't. Maybe these guys were geniuses who were playing four-dimensional chess, and they knew this all the time, and they'd been lying to me, mm-hmm. and that we, we designed all these things and went to this meeting as some sort of you know, brilliant corporate thing because, you know, these people all kept their jobs after the division was decided that it didn't make any money, didn't make any sense. And they fired all these artists and they fired all these people. These guys got to keep their jobs. So maybe that was their plan the whole time. Maybe they were geniuses. But from my standpoint, it looked to me like they were flabbergasted without putting it on broadcast television or even cable television and selling commercials. It doesn't even matter if those commercials cover the nut. You're not going to get toy deals. Yeah. So there is no Rings of Power toy deal. There were tons of toys sold for Lord of the Rings, yeah. but there's no Rings of Power toy deal and so on and so forth. You have those specialty toy deals like, you know, that where adults who, again, have father issues and mommy issues buy toys continuously and wear short pants and Green Lantern t-shirts to work. Yes, yeah. there's always a place for guys like that to embarrass themselves and buy toys. But for the rest of the world, <laughs> toys are no longer a thing for, for children's programming which you'll notice nobody's making children's programming anymore because that collapsed the business model of why you make children's programming. That's incredible. Wow. <laughs> did, I, did I say anything that didn't bum you out today at all? <laughs> no, you're all right. All right. It's all in the edit. <laughs> What's that? I not edit this out. The world needs to know the truth. You Don't. bastards. You work for the networks. Don't I'm silence me. Don't silence me. But no, it's yeah, okay. the full version is available on Patreon, so that people can actually pay a little money to actually hear the full episode. There we go. Patreon. So, like, if if they think they haven't heard most of my rant right now, that's a good time to go check out Patreon because I promise you, I said things they cut out. Yes. <laughs> and it's, and it's not bleeped out either. Oh, yeah. well, I'm, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> It will be. Not a problem. Well, Mike, I mean, obviously, over these two episodes, I mean, we, I think we've had more information and, and it's great to get your opinion and just a real truth come out. Mm. Uh, a lot of people, you know, tend to be more diplomatic and stuff, but it's very refreshing to actually get an honest opinion and feeling and an education as well. You have an outlook for the future now. You're setting up with your animation studio, of which we're going to be uh, keeping a very close eye on. So we want to know as soon as those projects are rolling and when they're yeah. due to come out, so we can promote them for you. I, I will announce it. I will announce them here first. I promise. Uh, as soon oh. as the, the Variety and Hollywood Reporter, and if they don't go, we'll please encourage everyone to continue watching The Simpsons for another thirty years because I really need that job. We'll make sure of it. Don't worry. Before we say goodbye to Mike, we have to say, um, subscribers, if you have liked what you have seen on the show today, give us a subscription. You know, they help. We have our Patreon also. So if you want uh, more exclusive content, we're also going to have short form. We're also going to have longer form. Andrew, I don't mean to interrupt, but am I to understand that Patreon is where you get the uncut version of what I said, where I named names and brought up corporate culture and even revealed a global conspiracy to destroy British culture? Is that the Patreon you're talking about? Mm -hmm. That is the Patreon that I am talking about. Seems Seems worth a pound or two to me to get the straight story that they don't want you to know. Exactly. Price of a cup of coffee a month. <laughs> so, 
so yes, uh, the Patreon, uh, we will have short form content going on though, also the longer content. And you know, the, the shows that you can see on YouTube are edited down versions, nice, neat, tidy packages in order to get money from you. Um, Please get involved. It's really nice to hear your thoughts and opinions on episodes, what you want to hear, what you've enjoyed the most about conversations. We're on all socials like Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, um, we're also on LinkedIn, places like that. Please get involved. It'd be great to hear your thoughts. Uh, from there, uh, next week, me and Steve will be back for the two-man show where he'll be giving his what's on the box reviews. We've got a whole lot of stuff coming up. Also, I've got to throw out there that our 100th episode uh, will be the return of the Pottywood All-Star Quiz. It's been an absolute pleasure hosting you these two weeks. We pray mm. that you are going to come back. We're going to love having you here. You have a home. Uh, but in the meantime, give us a plug. What have we got coming out from you? Um, well, aside from more Simpsons after the strike and hopefully a brand new studio, uh, if anyone would like any consultations or uh, educational stuff, I do travel the world. I, I like to teach high school students and college students, and uh, I do practical filmmaking courses. I enjoy doing that very much. I get to meet, meet new people, and uh, with the strike coming up, I've got time. So um, if anyone would like to contact me, uh, MikeDisa.net. M-I-K-E-D-I-S-A dot net. And like I said, I do consulting and I'd like to teach. I'd never say no to teaching ever anyway. Probably Joe would be interested. Joe is about to hopefully delve into the first time of doing an animation for our actual show opening. Let's see how so, it goes. We're on, we're on early ground. So Mike, I might be your first person that's hitting your emails. Absolutely. That'd be fun. I'd, be, I'd love to help with that. Oh, perfect then. But no, I, I can I can recommend Mike to anybody out there. The the wealth of information you've helped us with, the experience that you've had throughout your career, and just how genuine you are with wanting to help and give back to upcoming animators. If you're interested, please get in contact with them. Uh, and in the meantime, uh, it's a goodbye from me. And it's a goodbye from me. Take care. <laughs>